This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast. Powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We are delighted to bring you season four of Driven by Data, the podcast. And our aim remains exactly the same, to bring you some of the most respected and recognized thought leadership figures from the world of data analytics to share their knowledge, ideas, use cases, and insights across how they've tackled some of the industry's most trending topics and challenges. All that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season four. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Sidgraves, who is the Chief Data Officer at Zurich Insurance. So, Alex, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Now, I'm looking forward to this. So, um, where we always start, Alex, is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and, I guess, journey to date, um, if you would be so kind. Sure. So, I... I started doing a programming degree at university. That's probably where my journey starts. Um, A long time ago now, probably longer back than I care to remember, at the University of Portsmouth. So I went there because they allowed me to do programming without maths, which really appealed to me at the time. So I love logic. So that was fantastic. Uh, I went there. I did a a year's uh, placement in a pharmaceutical company um, as part of my degree. And then after graduating, I started working at Zurich Insurance, where I've now been working for coming up 19 years. You don't get that too much these days, very often, right? No, and it really, really wasn't intentional. So, I mean, it probably says an awful lot about Zurich as a company that I still want to be there 19 years later. Um, lots of opportunities that they've given me along the way. So, as I said, my, when I came out of university, I wanted to work in IT. But unfortunately for when I graduated, there were no jobs about in IT. So I fell into data, um, pulling information out of the back end of mainframes. I got to write code, which is what I love doing. So, And then I fell in love with data. I fell in love with patterns, what it could tell you, how powerful it could be. From that point on, I was fairly successful and moved through the ranks of the team I was in. Uh, got, then I got a fantastic opportunity a fair few years ago now uh, to be part of transforming data for my organisation. So moving along a familiar journey to many from a traditional MI function uh, when we started to an end-to-end data function. So this has enabled me to do many different roles over the years, which is probably a part of why I'm still there. So we brought everything back in-house. Um, so I was able to set up and run a data ops function. So moving into moving from there, I ran data architecture, which was, again, new to our organisation. Um, then into strategy to really look at what we needed to achieve to move the organisation forward. After a few years doing that, I became head of data, which had me in charge of the data management side of the function, um, which was engineering, architecture, visualization, governance. And then latterly in 2022, I was asked to take up the chief data officer role, um, which saw me add data science automation to the mix. So um, that's really my journey. I think probably the one thing I would say is that I've always been hyper aware of the fact that having worked for one company, I spend a lot of time externally because I haven't got that uh, background of having moved about and seen lots of different companies and how they do things. So a large part of my time is spent out talking to my peers, bouncing around things with other organisations, getting the opportunity to learn from others, um, to understand what they've been doing and then bring it back. And that's probably been critical to me in my journey and moving it forward, staying in one place for so long. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting observation, actually, isn't it? That Because, um, I mean, as I said, there's there's not many people that stick around in an organisation for that long. So kudos to you and to Zurich, I guess, because obviously they're doing something right to to keep great people like you. But interesting observation in that there's so much to learn from outside of the walls of an organisation and how things can be done. Um, you know, really good point that I think, um, you know, everything that we do within the community is all about bringing people together to share knowledge and ideas and use cases and the whole reason this podcast exists. Right. So, um, yeah, very much, uh, resonates with me. Um, 
obviously, Alex, we have listeners in 148 different countries, I believe now. So not everybody might be familiar with Zurich Insurance. So just give us a very high level overview of, you know, the business, what it does primarily, who it serves, etc. Sure, no problem. So Zurich UK is part of the wider insurance group. So uh, the actual wider group is a global insurance company based in Switzerland. Um, we offer a wide range of different insurance and risk management solutions for individuals, small businesses and large corporations. So we provide products and services in areas such as property and casualty, life protection, corporate risk and commercial insurance. Uh, Zurich has a strong culture of wanting to do the right thing uh, for its customers, employees, shareholders and the environment. Um, it's existed in a company since 1872, so quite a long tail not unsurprisingly for an insurance company um it's FTSE 100 company so it's in 170 countries has a strong ethos of sustainability and um one of the things we're very proud of is we have a charity we have a charity group but we also have a charity in the uk called ZTT that's provided over two million of funding to support those in need so it's it's a good company yeah clearly absolutely Obviously, you took over the CDO role in 2022, I think you said, right? Um, I guess at that point in time, obviously, there must have been a transition in the organisation. What was the purpose of you taking on that role? And I guess, what have you been tasked with achieving kind of moving forward? So the really good thing for me was that I was quite a big part of creating the data strategy, which I inherited. So that was very helpful um, as taking on the CDO role. But essentially what I've been asked to do is pretty simple. So I need to deliver value through data. That's pretty much why I exist as a CDO. So I'd say no day is ever the same, which is probably why I love it, if I'm honest. Um, So I'm in charge of ensuring that our data strategy meets the needs of the organisation now and for the future, Um, alongside making sure it's aligned to deliver on our business goals. I think that's one of the things that's key for data and its success is that we have to deliver for the business. Mm -hmm. We're not there as an exciting thing inside to be technically perfect as much as some of us may want to sometimes. It's about driving value. So I think that that's ultimately drive value aligned to the business. Um, We've just launched our third data strategy in Zurich. So um, there's a lot of my time at the moment is, is facing that through around the business. So it's quite, it's an interesting one. So our previous two data strategies have been very internally focused because we were in transition. This one is very much business focused. So it's fully aligned to business strategy, 25% tech. You've got to have a bit of tech in there. We are a data team. Um, 25% value, again, massively important. A lot of data science analytics. How do we really um, put pound amount value to what we do? But actually, probably the most important is it's 50% people, this strategy. So it's a lot about empowerment. How do we empower our organisation to use data? And then about fluency and literacy. How do we make sure that we can drive the strategy through the business and have them understand how to use and interact with data? Really interesting. Okay. So, I mean, I my personal view, I think the job spec of every CDO should be exactly what you just said. Deliver value through data. It should be as simple as that, right? And I know there's it's nowhere near as simplistic and that as that, and there's a lot of complexity to it. But ultimately, I think that's why that role now exists, and we live in a space where, unfortunately, for many organisations, they haven't quite realised as much value as they were expecting. So that you know the the value component gets scrutinised even further now, right? And it's almost become the job. So really interesting to hear you say that. I wanted to pick up on the facts of the the third iteration of the data strategy, if you want to call it that. And, you know, previously it's been quite internal focused. Now it's more to the business. What Just talk us through that paradigm and kind of why that journey and transition has occurred, if you would. Sure. Um, I think when we started, it needed to be internally focused because it was about how do we set ourselves up for success? And at the time, we were very much a traditional MI team, very manual, quite siloed, um, really not thinking strategically. It was, you know, responding to daily asks. And I think we came into a period where we're a financial services company, right? We're highly regulated. We were seeing increased regulation, more and more demand from data from our business and no ability to deliver it. So that first strategy was very focused around removal of risk. How, and how do we remove risk? We needed a technological answer to that. 
And I think that was the right answer at that point in our journey. Um, I think the second strategy was building on that. And I would say the second strategy got a little bit derailed because of COVID, as many things did, perhaps. Um, but again, it was building that. I think by the time we came around to our third strategy, it was really clear that the business don't want to talk about risk anymore. They don't want to talk about um, technology. They want to talk about value, right? So for us, the third strategy, if it was going to be successful, which we needed it to be, it had to align 100% to what our business was looking to achieve. Therefore, if we started talking about tech, they're going to switch off to start with. So it had to be how are we going to deliver um, to enable them to deliver their strategy. So I suppose where what your strategy looks like depends on your maturity. But if I went in with the data strategy now that focused on technology over value, I don't think I'd win hearts and minds, which is half the piece when it comes to data. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. It, it sounds just like a natural evolution and transition from defense to offense, right? In, in all, all, all honesty, which, which yeah, makes makes perfect sense. So I know the, the one thing, Alex, that you are very passionate about is obviously diversity and inclusion. Um, and you've won a few awards for having a data team that is obviously very diverse and very inclusive. I guess, what do you put that success down to in terms of the winning of the awards, but also what allowed you to win those awards? I've got some really good people in my team that are very good at writing award nominations. <laughs> um, so, so this is a hard question to answer, actually. It's a really difficult one, but actually I think it's the answer is probably really simple. So I think the reason that we've been successful is because myself and my leadership team want the best team we can possibly have. And I think it, it really is as simple as that. It's not for anything more than that. So, you know, the reality is that it's widely acknowledged, although whether people believe it, sometimes I'm not sure, but it's widely acknowledged if you bring together people with different perspectives, different backgrounds, you get more creative, innovative solutions, right? That is just a reality. You see it time and time again. And I think equally, you need to avoid groupthink as well. Right? If you end up with lots of people that think the same way and approach things in the same way, they're all going to sit there violently agreeing with each other. And then you just keep doing the same thing you've always done. Whereas I think we as a team very much believe in positive challenge. Right? We don't run hierarchically. We're very kind of flat in structure for the very purpose of actually that everybody's opinion is valid and everybody has the right to challenge. I also think it's probably some of my own personal experiences come into play a little bit. So I've, I've experienced some excellent individuals through different things that I've done over the years. So I've done some external mentoring programs and I've had people in front of me that have come from ethnically diverse backgrounds, for example, that are excellent. And have they turned up in front of me for an interview I would have hired them in a heartbeat. But actually, in reality, they were being screened out before they got to the interview stage. Um, I was one of two women on my degree course, would be not massively surprising. Mm. I'm still often one of two women around the table at data events, although I have to say it's improved dramatically over the last few years. Um, I've got a good friend who holds a CRO role, um, and she has a drama degree. Right? She would not get on most graduate programs in financial services now with a drama degree but mm. why not she's amazing at her job you know so I think I'm one of these people that reflects quite a lot and I think if I add to the fact that if I tell you in one year during the trade data transformation I did 175 interviews and when you do that many interviews you start to realize that you're getting a lot of the same type of applicants and that makes you think about things and make you want to do something differently so I think if all of those things kind of together came to make it really for us that we needed to do something different. I'm interrupting today's episode to bring you a quick message from one of our latest podcast sponsors, Cambridge Spark. I've been doing a bit of work in collaboration with Cambridge Spark over the last several months, and I feel that their message needs to be heard. And ultimately, I feel it complements what we do here at Orbition Group very well. Did you know that according to Boston Consulting Group, only one in four organizations have the expertise they need for successful digital transformation? And 
as a data leader, you're pressured to link data initiatives to business impacts and the value that that creates. But as we all know, often inadequate data skills across the organization can be the thing that holds you back. Cambridge Spark has a solution. Through government-funded apprenticeships, they help organizations like yours to build data talent without the risks and costs of hiring. Blending online learning with on-the-job work, your team gains the technical skills that they need, you know, Python, machine learning, etc., alongside the business abilities like data storytelling. Apprentices approach projects with specific outcomes in mind. Their learning spreads to democratize data usage across your organization and drive efficiencies. The outcome, a workforce and culture empowered by data to achieve more. If you're ready to equip your team with the data skills needed to accomplish your goals, visit cambridgespark.com forward slash driven to learn more about upskilling through free apprenticeships. That's cambridgespark.com forward slash driven. Cambridge Spark, digital skills for workforce transformation. Yeah, I mean, that that makes perfect sense. And obviously in my line of work and what I do day to day is often helping organizations who are in the midst of that journey, you know, because everyone says it, you know, we want to we want a diverse team, but actually the mechanics that go behind that is a lot, it's a lot easier to say it than it is to to do it, right? Which so prompts the next question very nicely. But I guess what so what what did you do then? I guess from a very practical perspective, you know, you've identified that there's this issue in the industry, which everybody knows exists and everybody knows that's there. Obviously, you start, you know, you're doing a lot of interviews as you're building your team and you're seeing a lot of the same types of people. You know that you want to avoid group think. You know that the power is in having diverse and different perspectives because that's where innovative and creative solutions come from. But I guess how do you get to that point of ensuring that that happens amidst all of the similar types of people that you continuously interview? Like, were there any kind of practical things that you were doing to make sure that you you know, ch- change the status quo, as it were. Yeah, lots of things, actually. And incrementally, over time, you kind of add things to it. So um, one of the things that we did, it, you know, the one thing I will say is that this creating a diverse team is not about ticking boxes. Right? If you start off with a view that you want to tick boxes, you're going to fail because that's absolutely not the answer. The answer is that you want to get the absolute best person for the job. And it doesn't matter if that person is male, female, ethnically diverse, not neurodiverse, not. It really doesn't matter. It's about making that funnel as big as it can possibly be so you get as many applicants as you can get. And I think if you take it from that standpoint, we started to look at what was reducing that funnel. So one of the things we did in our graduate scheme was we removed STEM from our graduate scheme. So we got our first year of removing STEM as a requirement, we got 170% more applicants into our graduate scheme. Wow. I mean, that's huge, right? Um, other things that we did, uh, we made our job advert shorter. So we all know it's statistically known, right, that it, it's a stereotype. I appreciate it won't, it won't be everybody, but men are more likely to go for a job where 30% of the list of what it's asking for they can do, whereas women want 90%. So we made that list really small. Why why do we need to ask for 100 things? We only need like three or four. So we reviewed everything and started doing that. We looked for simple things like neutral language. COVID was a bit of a, a turning point for us as well, I think, because what COVID proved to us was that we could work virtually. And because we could work virtually really successfully, that opened up a massive possibility for us in that we could recruit whole of UK. Your funnels just got massive then. I'm not looking 30 miles in all directions. I literally don't care where you live in the UK. You know, I've got people in Kent, Devon, Glasgow, and my, my office is on the South Coast. So, you know, they're everywhere. So that, again, opens up even more. Um Zurich's really good as well in the fact that we offer every role as job share as well as the normal full-time, but also we have something called flexi time or flexibility in our hours. So that means that we could be, as a, as a function, we were able to go, actually, you can work four day, five days over four, actually, if that works with your family, or you can work different hours that enable you to work with your caring responsibilities, be that an elderly relative or children or a dog or whatever it is that works for you. So again, all of these different things 
just enabled us to open that funnel slightly wider and wider and wider, which meant we had more brilliant candidates came coming in, picking the best people for the role. And then we ended up with a fantastically diverse team almost as a consequence of that. Mm. So that's really interesting. I'm so glad you you kind of you've gotten to that point there because obviously really what you're saying is you just you were doing all of the right things, right? You know, you were kind of walking the walk and not talking the talk. And the byproduct just happens to be that you've built this amazingly great, diverse and inclusive team. Unfortunately, I see many organizations who focus on the outcome at the start, right? So they so so their starting point is we need more X enter any, you know, female, ethnic yeah. diverse, religion, neurodiversity, whatever it is, they need more of that. And therefore they then then they go looking for that but they don't realize that that is also part of the problem right mm-hmm. because they're not then they're not doing the very foundational ironic right we talk about the foundations of data all the time but they're not doing the foundational stuff that ever allows them to get to building diverse teams the the way that it should be built and i think you know the actually if you're going to turn it into the data spread you're absolutely right it's like the business people that come to us and say i want to do analytics and the data persons that sat there they go you can do lovely analytics but your data is not good enough right now it's it's exactly that you've got to do that first piece i think if you're trying to tick boxes you you'll just fail mm, yeah 100 agree um which leads me on to, I mean, I talk a lot about the difference between representation and diversity and the representation is massively important, but, and there is definitely a relationship there, but off too often people are focusing on representation, not diversity. Like what they are after is d- different representation around a table or within a team, not the benefits of what diversity will bring, right? What's the relationship of, of that to you? And I guess, are there any any practical tips that you can get or that you can give to avoid or to help people avoid falling into that trap? Because for me, it becomes very apparent when we speak to organizations day in, day out, it's it's obvious why they fall into that trap because they're, they are trying to do the right thing. They just don't realize that that's not, that's not the right thing to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, this one, they're related concepts, but not the same thing, I think. So I think representation and and I can see why a lot of organizations want to do this because representation is essentially the idea that an organization should reflect the diversity of the community so we want differences in terms of race gender ethnicity etc um but that doesn't change diversity of thought which is also important right so I think diversity of thought is is talking about the fact that you will have people from different perspectives experiences backgrounds regardless of what their demographic characteristics might be so you could end up with and i have seen this happen um you could end up with lots of people that might be different genders different ethnicities but actually because of their backgrounds they've grown up quite similarly with similar thinking and actually what you're trying to get out of that is your diversity of thought but you're not getting that you're getting group think even though people might look differently and I think from a practical standpoint I think it comes back to what I said before don't start with a tick box right you're not trying to get I don't want 30% women I don't want 10% ethnic minority you're not trying to do that you're trying to find people that think differently and I and also I think it's how do you interact with people within the interview process as well to get a little bit more out of them? You know, one of the things, interviews are stressful processes, right? Everybody is trying. They've got a really short period of time to put the best version of themselves forward. So for me, one of the things that's so important is how do you make that person so incredibly comfortable in that interview that you can see a little bit more about who they are rather than the version of you that they're trying to show you. So I think it's a really easy thing to fall into, but assuming that a man and a woman are going to automatically think differently. It's not necessarily the case, actually, depending on the underlying background. So, yeah, hundred percent agree. I, yeah. I use, yeah, I, I use that honestly. I use that analogy all the time when I'm having these conversations with some organisations that we're speaking to that are, you know, might be on the in the midst of building out a data team, and they're always saying things like, you know, we want to make sure it's really diverse and we want to have a great split between men and women and i'm like okay but what what's really important to you here because you can have a a group of 
10 people that all look different, come from different places, different religions, but actually if they've, they could have all have been brought up, you know, yeah. five miles apart, gone to the same university, study the same degree, and the therefore degree, yes. Yes, they look different, but they actually all think the same because they were brought up in the same area. They've got the same, you know, type of backgrounds and upbringings, etc. So, yeah, it's, really- it's trust the process as well a little bit because I have a team that's 50% female, 50% male. So I think maybe it's trust the process that you will get there. Yeah. But I think also... And it's a really simple one. And I think a lot of companies are doing it now, but having a diverse interviewing panel is good as well. And actually, if you don't have the ability within your team, because some people have small teams, right? If you don't have the ability within your team to have a diverse panel, borrow somebody from somewhere else. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, the the whole tick box thing, and it's a difficult one because I don't think anybody in any organization is out there maliciously trying to do this, but it's just a... You know, it's just a, a kind of lack of knowledge and, and an educational piece to say these are the things that that need to to change. But it's never as simple as that either, right? You know, even if it is a tick box exercise for some organisations, uh, we need more women on our senior leadership team. So let's go and hire a, a, a woman. It's like, well, it doesn't work like that either because you know a woman then looks at that and says, well, I'm going to admit there's no other women there, so why would I join that business? So the the problems are the ends of the spectrum get wider and wider because the businesses that are really good at it continue to attract more different representations of people in that. And the other end of the spectrum don't because they don't have anyone that looks different from anyone else. Right. So it's a, I mean, it's such a fascinating space. It really is. And and I agree with you a hundred percent. I don't think anybody, even if they are perhaps approaching it more from the tick box stand of things, they're doing it for the right reasons, right? Nobody approaches this subject trying to do the wrong thing. Everybody's trying to do the right thing. But yeah, it's just taking that step back and trying to work out what are you actually trying to achieve. Hmm. Talk to me then about the formation of the team in terms of levels of seniority, because obviously, you know, there's the entry level kind of um, career schemes that obviously you're heavily involved in. Obviously, you'll have more experienced hires. There's career changes. There's all sorts, you know, all varying dynamics going on here. Just talk to us about how all of that's played a part. Oh, my goodness. Um, so apprenticeships we've been using in Zurich for quite some time, and I think we use them in two ways. So we use them to both upscale our, our existing employees, which is really useful, whether that's because they want to be more data literate um, or whether it's because they want to change a career and do something slightly more focused on data. But then we also use them with the apprentices. Um, apprentices just make me smile. They are one of my favourite things in just working with data. So if I take our our data science team is a really good example, right? Um, data scientists are not the cheapest resource for organisations, right? And a big thing at the moment, everybody everybody wants to have data scientists want to do analytics, particularly with Gen AI. And don't get me wrong, you need to have experience to do data science. I'm not saying that you don't. But actually, if you can get some really good experience into your data science team, you can really pad that out with some fantastic apprentices. So, you know, we have four really strong leads in our data science area and then I have nine kind of mixed apprentices and grads so we're all about growing our own data scientists and they are so full of energy and excitement and they are just so infectious to work with and the work that they're doing is brilliant and really amazing and I think you know the one thing I would say about apprentices as well is that they're a lot stickier. Actually, if you're looking at the different kind of recruitment angles, apprentices do tend to stay with an organisation longer than perhaps some of the other um, earlier in careers routes. So we definitely do Exhibit that. <laughs> um, and I think from a from a career changes and return to work, so that's that's one that I'm working really closely with my HR department. There are ways we can do it, as say with the apprentices and stuff like that. One of the things that I'm working really closely with HR to try and work into our data spaces, I still think there are more jobs than there are people. Um, and we also know that with kind of AI and everything else, we're going to, the future of work is going to change and jobs are going to change, right? So whilst it's great that we've got a lot of different ways of pipeline to get new and early in careers in actually I'm just as interested in the other side too so um we're working to look at not just the apprenticeship because the apprenticeship for somebody who's later in their career is quite a lot 
because it's over two years, it's it's full on degree. And actually, so we're looking at trying to mirror a little bit more some of the companies out there that do that intensive kind of program of training over say a 16 to 20 week period um, to then really upskill employees and then bring them back into the data space, which we think from a career changer and a return to work will fit better than something that lasts for say two years and needs that constant training. But if you're looking at people later in life, they've got different commitments. It's not so easy. Um, so that that's very much a space that we're we're still exploring and really excited about. Um, from a experienced hires perspective, I would encourage people to look for skills that are similar but not the same. So we we're we're on a snowflake migration, right? We've been doing that for a while. Anybody that is touching snowflake knows that right now snowflake skills are a massive premium. And getting people with snowflake skills is difficult because lots of people are implementing the technology because it's very good technology. Um, so if you hire somebody with Snowflake on the CV, there's automatically a premium on it, and there aren't very many of them. So we didn't. We hired people from Teradata. We hired people from Oracle. We hired people from different places because actually it's a database engine. At the end of the day, the concepts are similar. We didn't necessarily have to go after somebody with that that particular skill set. People were so up for learning it. They're excited. So we were able to kind of pull people in. Again, I, I've worked for a long time in insurer and I've had lots of people say to me, oh, you know, we want people with insurance experience. Not really, if I'm honest. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes it can be really, really useful and we do bring people in from other insurers. But actually, I find it much more interesting to find someone that's coming in from manufacturing or someone that's coming in from retail because they're going to turn around and challenge what we're doing and go, come on, you can do better than this or you can try something different. So I think. Again, it's when you're looking at experienced hires, don't get so bogged down in have to have X, Y, and Z, otherwise they're not useful to me. Really try and move stuff out of that must-have into that nice-to-have column. And if you really challenge yourself, you'd be surprised on how little you get left in that must-have column. Just a quick one. I'm interrupting today's episode to let you know about our tact assessment. Our TACT assessment was designed and created to allow you to benchmark yourself against other organisations in your effectiveness in hiring data and analytics talent in today's market. Effectively, we cover three key areas. The internal perception of data analytics with inside your organisation. The external perception of your data analytics brand in the current talent landscape. And the third component is your organization's operational effectiveness, which covers things like time to hire, the recruitment process itself, um, remuneration, location, etc., uh, etc. Et Them three components are effectively what allow you to understand how effective you can be in attracting and retaining the best data and analytics talent. And the best part, we do all of that for free and put it in a nice shiny brochure for you. I don't want to bore you with the details, so if you're interested in learning more, navigate yourself towards www.obitiongroup.com forward slash talent hyphen advisory. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's I have this conversation every day of my life, right, where I'll speak to someone and say, okay, well, all right, I know what, I know what the job spec says, but actually, what do they really need? You know, what, what are the things that you really need to see? And, and as you say, you'll be surprised, there's actually normally two to three things i'd say normally that is actually this this is what they'll be doing day in day out so this is really important everything else they can kind of learn or pick up or we can teach and coach them or whatever the the case may be um i wanted to touch alex upon the importance of i guess culture if you want to call it that and, and i guess the environment so you've touched upon a couple of things there about hiring people maybe within with you know from outside of the direct line of skill set and being able to teach them you've talked about bringing people in on apprenticeships you've talked about bringing in career changes and you know finding a way to get them up to speed quicker my personal view on this is that there are very few organizations out there that are doing this and i think that's often driven by the fact that very few chief data officers are afforded the luxury of time right? So if you talk about the average tenure of the CDO depends who you believe, 18 to 30 months, let's say, right? If we're, if we're being generous, um, 
And I think that drives certain types of behaviors that I need someone that can come in and hit the ground running from day dot because I don't have six months to wait for this person to upskill in this technology, or I don't have two years for, to wait for these apprentices to graduate or whatever the case may be. I don't know if you feel, I guess, fortunate or you can shed any light on the type of environment that Zurich has allowed this truly diverse team to foster in and whether that's played a part. I'm, I'm guessing it probably has. There are different constraints, right? So I think different <laughs> constraints give you different behaviours. So I think the CDA thing always makes me think of the football manager, right? So I'm a big football fan, right? So, you know, why is the football manager not focusing on youth? Well, because if he doesn't get results really quickly, he's going to be out the door. Um, so therefore he goes and he buys success. Um I'm a Man City fan. Don't blame me for it. But you know. We're going to have to end this podcast right now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm born and bred, right? Way before the success. Had no choice. But anyway, so um, so it's a similar kind of thing, right? So I can appreciate it from that standpoint. Maybe, again, because I've been in the organisation for a long time, but also I would say I have a limited budget, right? So, and I think maybe that's my constraint that might be slightly different. So if I had a big budget, would I be tempted to do something differently? Probably in retrospect, no, if I could get away with it, because I think it's worked out very well for us. But my constraint was I had a certain budget that I had to adhere to and I wanted to get the very best team I possibly could. So I think things like the apprentices in today's science, yeah, okay, they're not going to run in like a PhD student would do and do things, but actually... I have a 19-year-old that is running on data science stuff now that's really running data science stuff in our, in our life area, massively impressing the business. So you shouldn't necessarily count them out as being able to do something quickly. But I think it's all the different constraints you have. And I think you work within those constraints. I think, yes, if you've got, if you've genuinely got 18 months to turn it around, um, it's pretty hard to do anything in data in 18 months, if I'm completely honest, if you're starting from nothing. And I think that's probably half the problem we've got in our industry generally. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it all depends on the constraints, I think. Yeah, 100%. No, and that, and that makes um, perfect sense. I'm, I'm conscious of time, Alex. We could probably sit and talk on this topic for about two hours. But I guess what I wanted to discuss before we finish up is I know when we spoke offline, you had some, um, I guess, fairly punchy thoughts around this whole notion of the translator role, right? Um, And when we first had that conversation, it's been something that's been playing on my mind and I've repeated that conversation to several people actually who've all gone, oh, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So there's obviously something there, right? So I wanted to kind of uncover that a little bit more. But I guess just to frame it for the audience, you you basically said something along the lines of that, you know, there's almost this misconception that data analytics people who come from a technical background are incapable of speaking and translating, right? And they're they're not given the opportunity in many instances to get better and practice. And, you know, they just don't have you know, they're not afforded the the opportunity. Um just just give us a bit more context to that, I guess, where that's come from um you know i I presume might be driven by experience of things that you've you know been involved with and seen and heard and stuff like that yes i think it's come from a few places i I was listening to a podcast a little while ago not yours i have to say um but it was um they were talking about they were recommending that the next big jobs in data were the data translator and the data journalist and it just really annoyed me because Data teams don't need those roles. What you're doing is you're putting a barrier between data and the business. So for me, power comes from data when they are closer to the business. If you add someone in to translate between the two, the relationship's never going to be at the level it needs to truly flourish. So when I look, so when I look at data science, um, where we've been truly successful in getting models accepted by the business is when we're with the business every single step of the journey from POC to implementation, including them being able to explain each stage and talking to them about their concerns, right? That's when we're successful. Whilst I I accept 100%, there'll be some data professionals that don't want to do that. Um, In my experience, many of them really do. And we just need to give them the opportunity. 
And I think equally the flip side of that is the closer that the data professional gets to the business, the more opportunities they'll see to drive value. So it's a real win-win relationship. If you've got somebody in between them, you're never going to get those opportunities coming to the forefront. You're never going to have those conversations and build those relationships. So I think it, it's a really sad state of affairs for me if we need to start having a translator between the two. What we should be working on on both sides is how we understand each other better because that's where the value truly comes from. Yeah, I mean, that makes um, that makes perfect sense. And I guess to a, a certain degree, back to the start of the conversation, right, it's about getting the best person for the job and, and this is part of the job, right? So if, yeah. unfortunately, there are data teams out there where, you know, they have teams full of people that do want to sit in a room on their own or in a dark corner and don't speak to anybody, well, that's probably not going to work either, right? So there's probably something that needs to be addressed. I guess with things, you know, Gen AI is all the rage and probably will be for for some time. Um, I know that you have done a lot internally and you do a lot within the wider industry in terms of, you know, the role of ethics and you know that type of stuff i guess is there a link between in your opinion having diverse and inclusive teams and the relationship with data and ai ethics if we want to call it that i love this question because it made me think about whether there was or not (laughs) Um, uh, yes i think is ultimately the answer that i came to so i think as AI and Gen AI becomes more advanced and more per- pervasive in our society, then ethical considerations just become increasingly important. I think if you think, why do you want diversity in a team? You want different perspective, experience and backgrounds. We've talked about that enough. But actually, that diversity can help potentially identify potential ethical challenges and biases in AI. So having a diverse team can help address biases in collection, design, decision-making. If we train things on biased data sets and we continue to do the same things, we amplify those societal biases, whereas a diverse team can bring those different perspectives to identify and rectify these biases. So ultimately, in theory, leading to fairer, more inclusive AI. So I do think so. Yes, I do think there is a link. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. And I know you've pulled together some kind of framework that you're adopting and adhering to, right, in, internally. Just give us a bit of context around that, if you could. Sure. So um, so Zurich has been working on its AI assurance framework um, based on its data commitment. So Zurich came out with a global data commitment in 2019, which is essentially four key points. So keep, keep customers' data safe, never sell customers' personal data, Don't share personal data without being transparent about it. And the most important one, put their data to work so Zurich can better protect them and they can get the most out of it. It's basically using customers' data for the benefit of themselves, right? So I think that was where it was born out of that we started this assurance framework. Um, That's to say it's been going since 2019. We looked at it globally because, again, 170 countries, we couldn't have something that worked for just the UK. It had to work across all of them. So we've looked at the governance and compliance communities, and we've come up with a global approach to responsible AI, which will continue to evolve because I think AI is continuing to evolve, so it will do. Um, And I think what it allows us to do is essentially bring together all of the communities of anybody that is doing anything AI, bring them together, have them talk, understand exactly what's going on, log what we're doing, but then also to go back out to our organisation and explain AI. So we have trained across the UK organisation hundreds of employees over the last year on what is AI, what do you need to be aware of, what do you need to care about. I think additionally, we've uh, we run ethical committees, so any new AI we build or any AI that we buy or propose to buy goes through an ethical committee. So we look at, um, would we be comfortable? Would our customers be happy if we did it? Is it the right thing to do before we instantiate anything into our organisation? So it's quite robust. I think the other thing that Zurich have been doing is we co-sponsored with Policy Connect um, a report called An Ethical AI Future, Gold Rails, 
guardrails and catalysts to make artificial intelligence a force for good. Really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, in response to the government white paper. So that was a really, really important thing for us to do, actually, and we'll continue to work with them in 2024 and future of skills. So I think it's about trying to get the government to really recognise um, the importance of how we take this thing forward and make sure we do it in the right way. So that was quite an important one for us too. Mm, yeah. No, it's um yeah very very interesting i mean it's you know every, I, I always find the the topic fascinating right because it normally lends itself more to what what's possible here and where's the legal line and limit right that's normally where the conversation runs to first and then it's oh actually but is that the right thing to do that's normally a an afterthought in many instances um so it's yeah I think that there's obviously huge potential and advantage that could come from this, but obviously. And the one thing I would say, well, one piece of practical advice on this is I have a fantastic lady who works for me, who's my AI and ethics lead. And if companies have the ability, try and get somebody who has this as a responsibility, because this is huge and it is just getting bigger and bigger and more complex so don't make it somebody's side of the desk activity. It's too important. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's it's similarly with um, things like you know comms and change in culture teams that are now being you know implemented into data analytics practices to to really drive the adoption and the literacy and the, the usage, etc. The the ethics thing is is also now becoming its own thing, which is is really good to see. Um, so to wrap up then, Alex, obviously you mentioned at the top there, you do a lot of, you know, out and about stuff within the the wider data analytics industry. I know that you're on the the kind of governing bodies and advisory boards for things like the DayIQ and Avanta and, and stuff like that. Are there any key trends or conversations that are happening in those circles that you think is worth highlighting over the next 12 months or so? Um, I'm probably not going to say anything that everybody hasn't heard a million times, but I think probably Gen AI, surprise, surprise, is probably going to continue to be a big topic. I think, you know, it's part of every conversation that I have. Um, it creeps into every roundtable that I have with either governing body, to be honest, in one way, shape or form. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's moved probably beyond the opportunities piece, which is absolutely key. Um, and we all know there are lots of opportunities and possibilities to be had from Gen AI, but certainly very much moving into what are the risks and impacts um, moving forward. What does it mean for the future of work? How do we ensure that whatever we do, um, we're looking for making sure we're doing the right thing for our customers and employees, etc. So I think Gen AI is going to continue to be a big one. Um, It'll be interesting to see who really, you know, you you see it start to proliferate. You can see things like Amazon and eBay are starting to use it in their summarization. And I think when it comes to when it comes to highly regulated environments, I think there'll probably be a lot more internal use cases rather than external. And I think we'll probably have the human in a loop for quite a few years to come yet, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But what I would say to people is to it's a hype cycle, but make the most of it. So one of the things that I've noticed is never before in my career have people been so interested. I was so interested in talking about AI. I've been to boards. I've been invited to the exam. You know, people are interested in talking about it. And actually, that's fantastic because it gives you the opportunity to talk about things wider than just generative AI. You can sit and you can talk to them about the fact that, you know, I've been doing we've been doing AI in the organization for a number of years and these are all the things we've done and isn't it fantastic and it also gives you the one of the things that I think is coming up for me a lot at the moment is as an organization you can buy technology anyone can buy technology and you can hire really amazing data scientists and they can build clever models and everybody can do that too but the one differentiator that every business has is their data and keeping it safe and sorting its quality out and getting it to the state where it can be used, that's the unsexy stuff that nobody wants to talk about. That's the stuff that takes the time that, you know, the 18 months turn it all around makes it difficult. And I think this gives everybody the massive potential to explain to people that might not necessarily have wanted to have a conversation before. You want to do this really exciting stuff, you've got to do this bit first. So I think it's a really interesting opportunity 
Um, and then the other one probably for me is literacy. So not new, but still just as important as ever, uh, not going away. And it's not easy either. So um, I think having an amazing data team driven great, delivering great results won't make your organisation data literate, won't make your organisation data driven. So again, it can't be a side of a desk activity. It's got to be driven as a proper change programme. Um, you need to understand where the all different areas of your organisation sit. Um, and it's not a one size fits all answer. You can't sheep dip people to make them data literate. You've really got to kind of move it forward. I think those are probably still the big ones. Mm. That I, the big ones that I would say at the moment. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole Gen AI thing, um, it's interesting, right? Because obviously we all know that any AI activity is only going to be as good as the data that it's fed by, right? But as you said, those types of conversations very rarely get the airtime that they need and deserve around a boardroom table because exactly that, they're not sexy, right? But I think a lot of data leaders are, you know, trying to grasp onto this opportunity to, you know, get into that conversation by using Gen AI as the the North Star and to fix all of the underlying things that, you know, fall before it. So yeah, very interesting. Uh, Alex, fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Um, Really enjoyed the chat and uh, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing how the rest of your journey unfolds. Thanks, Carl. episode of driven by data the podcast i hope you enjoyed it i'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics until then please follow our vision group on social media if you've not already done so where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive and please share like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two if you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Music.